HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15. Learn more at gardencult.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Sally Sampson is an author, a healthy food champion, and a magazine publisher. When I first met Sally, I was wowed by her productivity, 25 cookbooks and counting. But that was never the whole story for Sally. Ten years ago, she had an idea for a nonprofit cooking magazine that would be fun and educational for families and inspire them to cook. She called the magazine Chop Chop. It is a huge success. James Beard Foundation loves it. Pediatricians around the world love it, as well as parents and kids. Even Michelle Obama is a fan. Today, Sally will tell us how a ninth grader's decision to become a vegetarian just might have launched an entire cooking empire. I think that I really got into food when I became a vegetarian in ninth grade. A friend of mine, just sort of on a dare, said she wanted to become a vegetarian. Did I want to? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so I did. And after two weeks, she said to me, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I said, okay, I'm not going to do it anymore. But that night we had chicken for dinner and I was like, yeah, I don't think so. And then the next night we had steak for dinner and I was like, yeah, I don't think so. And so I became a vegetarian and I was a vegetarian for 14 years. But what happened was my mother said to me, guess you're going to have to learn how to cook. She was cooking what she was cooking. She had a full-time job. She came home at the end of the day. She made dinner. But she said, learn how to cook. And I did. I had always liked cooking, but I really got into it. That really started me on cooking. I had to cook every day or I just ate around the meal. And this was in the 60s when being a vegetarian was not commonplace. I was considered very weird. And in fact, I remember my mother taking me to the pediatrician. What am I going to do with her? And the pediatrician looking at my mother and saying, 
it's just a phase. And I was like, watch me. (laughs) So I stayed a vegetarian. That is a hard thinking young woman. How did you get from being a vegetarian to every other thing that you cook and do? Well, I'm not a vegetarian anymore. But when I was 25, I'd been a vegetarian for 11 or 12 years. My boyfriend was grilling steak. You know, there's something about grilling. I always say you could grill a flip-flop and it would taste good. I just ate way too much of it because it tasted so good. And then, of course, I got sick. I probably didn't have the enzymes anymore to properly digest it. But anyway, then I just started slowly putting meat back in my diet and everything else. And I really became very adept at cooking vegetables. I grew up with a mother who cooked all the time. In that generation, women were cooking through Julia Child. So she was cooking like a classic, what was then an American diet. But whenever she entertained, which was a lot, she would always cook really interesting stuff from Julia Child. So I had really grown up eating a pretty wide range of foods. And wasn't scary to try something new. Like I remember the first time I had a pomegranate. I didn't grow up eating pomegranates and they probably weren't sold in most stores. But as soon as they did, it wasn't like, ooh, that's scary and foreign kind of. It. Everybody in my family was really interested in food and eating. So I just continued that. And the other thing is my grandparents, of course, when I went to their house, they would bring out, you know, just like the most fantastic vegetables for me. And one of my grandmothers was always getting giant things of fresh strawberries. And so they catered to me. So it made it very appealing to stick with it because my brothers were getting steaks, which seemed really boring, but I was getting everything else. So I just continued that way. And how did it become a profession? Here's a story that sort of makes sense today in in a funny way in which it didn't before. My best friend growing up, her older brother, he'd been a teacher and he really loved being a teacher. And his parents were in the movie business. They convinced him to become an agent and he became an agent and he hated being an agent. He really was the best teacher ever. So he became an agent and he got into drugs. And he ended up overdosing on heroin. And when Michael died, I felt like he died because he wasn't doing what he wanted with his life. And it made me feel like that was really important. And I realized that what I wanted to do was I wanted to have my own business and I wanted it to be in food. So I opened up my own little takeout shop. This is a long time ago. It wasn't so much money to do something like that. I just opened up this little cafe and I used Silver Palette, for instance, as a cookbook from which to make soups and salads and things like that. Then just got more and more inventive and everything became inspiration. What I sold the most of were fresh soups. If you called up between 11 and 2, you couldn't get a person. It was just a soup message. So it was just said, today's soups are, you know, blah, 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 blah. At some point, somebody said to me, you should write a cookbook. And I thought, oh, okay. You know, and so I knew somebody who knew somebody at Simon and Schuster and I sent them a letter and unbeknownst to me, they sent someone into my shop who said the soups are good. Talk to her. I didn't even own a computer. 
I don't even know if I owned a typewriter to tell you the truth. So I did a soup cookbook and that was my first book. And I found that I liked writing books and writing more than I liked serving the public, which anybody who's listening, who's ever worked in a restaurant knows how hard it is. I just started writing cookbooks. And then from there, just kept going. Everything was fodder. I just started writing a lot of single subject books that was sort of the same thing, like exhaust an idea. You also came from a family that had writing in their blood. So my mother wrote for House Beautiful in its heyday, or maybe they think it's its heyday now, whatever. And my grandmother actually wrote the play that became Casablanca. And I went to my mother's office all the time and she was always surrounded by writers and stuff. But it it wasn't like my parents thought, oh my God, there was no sense of like, you're doing what? You kept writing and writing and writing. And then you got very into um, kids' nutrition. I have two kids. They're now grown, but my daughter has a chronic illness. It's uh, pancreatitis. And at the time when she was really little, the thinking was that, you should be on a 5% fat diet. She was diagnosed when she was one. So I started doing a lot of research. I'd already been cooking a ton. So I was very familiar with how to adjust a recipe and, and how to adapt things. In the process of learning how to feed Lauren, I ended up learning a lot about obesity because it was all about cutting fat, at least then. So for her, I had to cut the fat But the way to learn about it was to learn about obesity. And at some point I thought, well, I have all these skills in recipe development. And if obese kids could learn about nutrition, learn about food, learn how to cook, maybe I could help solve that problem. The original idea of Chop Chop was for pediatricians to distribute it during well child visits. Now, Doctors are required to talk about healthy eating and physical activity, but that was really just starting 10 to 15 years ago where doctors were mandated to talk about it. Most doctors were not educated in nutrition, cooking, or anything like that. And honestly, when I started Chop Chop, the idea that you would use cooking as an antidote to obesity was considered bizarre. And not only was that considered bizarre, it was considered bizarre to try to get kids to cook. Now all these things are part of the culture. So you would bring your kid to the pediatrician. The pediatrician would talk about whatever they were going to talk about. And then they would talk about physical activity and nutrition. And then what they were able to do was to connect to the kid around it. So they could say, oh, you know, I just bought some really beautiful tomatoes. Do you like tomatoes? And here's a really good thing to do with them. You just sprinkle a little of this on it and you have a delicious tomato. The first um, printing was 142,000 copies. It went to 35 different states. Pediatricians were requesting them. But as soon as we launched and other people saw us, they said, well, We're an after school. This is a problem in after school. We're an Indian reservation. So basically, we expanded the mission of Chop Chop to go beyond pediatricians' offices, basically wherever you found kids. We're in English and in Spanish. We're in every state, 22 other countries. We have one state that buys 170,000 copies a quarter. They distribute it to different 
county extension offices. We have another account that buys 40,000 and they distribute those into schools, after schools, corner stores. It depends who's paying for it and what they care about. Pediatricians get one case, which is 50 copies, and they distribute those. When we started, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, no idea. And as different states came in, they all used it differently. So we don't even say this is what you do. It's just somebody comes in and buys it and they are really creative with it. A lot of people during the pandemic have been buying it and they put it in the food boxes that families come pick up. It's purchased and distributed in any way you could possibly imagine. What about this is the most delight for you of the whole Chop Chop creation? You you went from an idea and a couple of people who are willing to sort of co-venture with you, other writers, photographers, editors, and then it sort of became this whole big enterprise. What parts of it do you really love? I have the best job in the world. I get to create new recipes. Everybody who's in this, for lack of a better word, industry, they're all doing it because they love it or that they have a passion somewhere around it. I never have an icky conversation with anyone. I had a doctor yesterday contact me who wanted to do a study with Eatable Alphabet, which is a deck that we've produced for smaller kids. She calls me, we want to distribute it. We want to see what kind of impact it makes. This is a doctor who's incredibly busy. And she looks at this thing and says, how can I use it most effectively? So I'm just like, great. Like, how can I help you? What do you need from me? I don't have anybody calling me and complaining about anything. The vendors that we use, we've used for a really long time. We're not on the ground with families, but the people who are, are kind of amazing people. They really are. So the combination of dealing with nice people all the time, plus my staff is amazing. Everybody who works at Chop Chop is really into the mission. They all love to cook. So work for us is sitting around talking about food or I'm experimenting with stuff and people are critiquing it. It's very rewarding in terms of the big picture. I feel like we are making a difference in the world and it's very rewarding in terms of my little life. We'll be back with Sally Sampson in a minute, and she'll tell us how a prolific recipe writer comes up with her ideas. She'll also share her advice on what to do about a picky eater. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. Carmen DeVito is a professional garden designer, certified New York State landscape professional, and the founder of Garden Cult. You may also know her from HRN's home gardening videos and our series, We Dig Plants. Garden Cult is a culmination of Carmen's more than two decades of experience designing and building gardens in New York City. Carmen believes that gardens and outdoor spaces should be healthy, environmentally sustainable places that enhance the health of people, nature, and the planet. She knows how to help you maximize the space you've got, help you work with and make the most of the materials, plants, and trees that you already have, and create an outdoor place to use and enjoy for you and your family. Get started at GardenCult.com. 
For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15 through September 30th, 2021. That's code HRN15 at GardenCult.com. And we are back with Sally Sampson. There are a lot of people who have no idea how you come up with a recipe, how you look at ingredients and make them swim into a recipe and the right proportions, the right flavoring, they add this and that, that one little thing that makes it special from somebody else's tomato soup. How do you approach that? So a friend of mine told me about a recipe recently that it might be Armenian, but I'm not sure. It was thickened yogurt, mango puree, and cardamom. And I think it was like maybe slightly frozen. So I think to myself, well, I don't really want to thicken yogurt, so I'm going to use Greek. I don't really want to use mango puree, so I use frozen mango and mash it. I basically look at the recipe and think, what parts of it do I want to keep and what parts of it do I want to get rid of? So the thing with this yogurt and mango thing is, since my friend told me about it, I have eaten it every single day. I'm obsessed with it. For me, my version is more appealing. But I think this really comes from experience. Just cook. It doesn't matter. Whatever the thing is, just do it. Follow the recipe the first time. One of the things we say in Chop Chop at the end of almost every recipe is, now taste it. Does it need more lemon? Does it need more basil? Does it need more salt? We're basically saying to kids, try our recipe the way that it is. And then at the end, see, do you like it like this? And then maybe you make it and you say, I really liked it, but it didn't have enough. I don't know. I add lemon to everything. If you had one of my recipes, you might say a little lemony, (laughs) you know, and maybe the next time you'd say, she said to put in, two tablespoons of lemon, I'm going to try with one and now taste it. So a friend of mine, this was like 30 years ago, I was at her house and she was making chocolate chip cookies and she was making the version off the toll house bag. And she says to me, I need some more flour. Let's go get some flour. I, I had been watching her make it. And I said, how much more flour do you need? And she said, I need a tablespoon. Because the Toll House bag said two cups plus one tablespoon flour. I laughed and laughed and laughed at that uh, because I would never have done that. Like she was following the recipe exactly. Anyway, so we went and we got the flour. Now she would never do that. She didn't cook in those days. So she didn't know that in something like that, it really wouldn't make any difference. It's like rehearsing in a sense. How much can you ruin something? Really pay attention to what you're doing. Don't do something else while you're cooking. Here's one thing that actually is something that people don't do that they should do is read the entire recipe first. I have gotten into problems with that myself. I think I know what's coming and I don't. And I think that's really, really important. Read through the entire thing because also sometimes recipes are not well written. I will say our recipes are really well written. Not only do we test them obsessively, but we have a kid's advisory board and they test them. I would use recipes from sources that you really trust, which 
doesn't mean every single thing you pick up on the internet. If you really know how to cook, you can just look at a bunch of ingredients and know what to do with it. But if you don't, you really need the step-by-step. So I would say, read everything, do it exactly as it says. Like one of the funniest things to me is when you go online and there's a recipe and people have all these comments. And sometimes it's like, well, I didn't have any broccoli, so I used asparagus and I didn't have any chicken broth, so I used milk. And then they're like, I didn't like it. I think, well, because you didn't actually make the recipe. So I think if you're inexperienced, make things that sound appealing to you. If you don't like asparagus, don't make asparagus soup and use something different. Follow the recipe, read it through first, take it seriously. My favorite thing really is opening up my refrigerator and saying, I have these six things. What am I going to make? But that's not for the beginner. The beginner has to just cook. You don't start out amazing at it. You just have to do it. You've written a whole book about picky eating. How do you help parents come down from that cliff if they have a kid who just, every meal is an argument? The thing that we find with kids is that kids who cook have wider palates, in part because if they make it themselves, they're intrigued. We've had so many kids who come into a photo shoot and they're like, no, 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 I don't. I'm not going to eat that. And we say, you don't have to, but cook it, whatever. And they end up eating it because it's sort of like their artwork in school. They want to like see it up on the refrigerator. And so I think they want to find out what they made. And that is often the cure for picky eating. It's not the only cure, but it is a cure that when kids start to cook, they want to taste stuff. And then it's not a fight with the parent. It's more about them owning it. I picked these tomatoes and now I cut them up and put a little salt on them. And it's not about my mother telling me what to eat. So picky eating is really impacted by cooking. Let me just say, I'm not talking about people who have sensory issues and learning issues. I'm talking about your sort of -of run-of-the-mill kid who's just fighting with you. I think you just sort of ignore it. You know, you don't get into a battle. When my kids were little, I was always writing cookbooks. I don't think I had a big philosophy about it, but it was sort of, this is dinner. This is what I did today. My rule with my kids was that if they didn't want to eat it, starting at two, they could get themselves multigrain Cheerios, which don't have sugar in them, cottage cheese, or yogurt. That's it. And they would get off their little chair and pad into the kitchen and sometimes get those things. I don't really remember like fighting with them ever about eating. When I started really working on picky eating via Chop Chop, I asked my kids who are both in their late 20s, did I really say, here are the three foods you can eat? And they said that I did. My daughter said it was never worth not trying what I had made because I wasn't going to jump up and make her something that she in particular liked, which is what the parents of most picky eaters do. They make a second meal. My thing was like, this is dinner. And if you don't like it, that's fine, but you take care of it. And they were really little when I started that. Obviously, there are things they don't like, just as there are things I don't like or you don't like. But 
they were not picky eaters. I also didn't make them taste anything. I do not believe in that. It was like, this is dinner. I'm supplying it. You get to decide what you want to do. And it worked. And neither of them have eating disorders. I do think that when you get into the battle, you're giving your kids a lot of attention for something negative. Kids, for the most part, at a young age, don't recognize the difference between negative attention and positive attention. It's all attention. That's another thing is I never had food in the house that I didn't want my kids to eat. You find parents a lot of the time who say my kids only eat mac and cheese and they're upset about it. Well, your kid's not doing the grocery shopping. So I think if you eliminate the foods that you don't want your kids to eat, that also helps. It's just striking me listening to you that your approach to your kids is a little bit like your mother's approach to you when you became a vegetarian. I was raised in the 50s and the 50s and 60s and nobody then was doing two separate meals. And I think my mother thought, you're 14, you've made a choice, you know, you cater to yourself. You know, when I say that she said that, she didn't say it with any hostility. It was like, uh, you want to paint your room, paint your room. Like, I'm not going to paint your room for you, you know? So I think that it is very similar, actually. It is very similar. We are nearing the end of the pandemic. What's your perfect end of the pandemic food experience? I can't wait to have a dinner party. I, I, I don't care so much about going out to a restaurant. I want to have a dinner party. And in terms of what I would serve, it's more about being with a bunch of people and making good food. I just, I can't wait for that. Thank you, Sally. To learn more about Chop Chop Family, visit their website, chopchopfamily.org. You will love it, and so will your kids. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. This podcast is supported by the Hunger to Health Collaboratory, a cross-sector leadership initiative dedicated to reducing the health consequences of hunger. With generous support from Stop and Shop, Hunger to Health Collaboratory convenes partners across sectors to advocate for health equity and food security. For more information, visit hungertohealthcollaboratory.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. page.